I'm Silas Farley, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Hear the Dance. This episode is the second half of my conversation with Jennifer Homans. Jennifer is the most recent biographer of City Ballet co-founder George Balanchine. Her book is entitled Mr. B, George Balanchine's 20th Century, and it was published last year by Random House. Our conversation picks up with Jennifer's insights about City Ballet co-founder Lincoln Kirstein and continues with our discussion of Balanchine's wives, the recurring themes in his ballets, his characteristics as an artistic director, and more. Enjoy. Jennifer Lincoln, how was he the collaborator that Balanchine needed? What were the dynamics of their personal and professional collaboration? Yeah, you know, uh, Lincoln is a key, key part of the story. And I think it's important to remember that, as he himself said, you know, there was nothing uh, certain about it. The Balanchine Kirstein co-founded New York City Ballet and Kirstein there from 1933 until the very end, until Balanchine dies, and even longer, because he lives longer, was never inevitable and almost fell apart many times. So the thing that I left feeling about Lincoln is that he had enormous sticking power. Mm. He just kept coming back. And, you know, when he brings Balanchine to New York in 1933 and they start, it's a rough road. I mean, they found the school right away, mm. the School of American Ballet. Mm-hmm. That's where it begins. And, uh, and these early ballets, many of them are coming out of the school mm-hmm. with students. But company, there are many of them. And they fail and they fail and they fail. And, and then there's the war. I mean, let's just do the big picture big now. Picture. The, there, then there's the Second World War, and Lincoln goes off to fight. I mean, he doesn't fight. He ends he's a up, monuments man. He's a monuments man, and he's there at the end of the war and then in the weeks and months after the war trying to rescue art. Um, and then the amazing connection there, Balanchine's one of the first biographers, Bernard Taper, also a monuments man. Exactly. Which is so cool. Exactly. But when he comes back, you know, they've split there's nothing to say that they would necessarily. Mm. But I think part of what happens is that even the times when they're apart bring them together. Hmm. Like the war, for example. Balanchine's in New York. He's deeply affected by the war because he has lived through war. And he, you know, we, we can talk about some of the work he did in that time, yeah. including Concerto Barocco and the Crucifixion of Christ yeah. to Bach's St. Matthew and Passion. Pa- exactly. And, you know, which is really all about starving children. It's a mm. benefit, and it's, it's his. So they're both being deeply affected by the war. Lincoln comes back from the war, having seen Germany in ruins and the Jewish culture destroyed. And, and don't forget that he's Jewish, and his family is very Jewish in their sense of themselves. So he, he comes back, and the idea of the body in ruin, mm. of the human form destroyed, he comes back from the war completely committed to the human form. Like a restoration. Like the a restoration. Of the human body. How are we going to focus art on the human form? And he's interested in that in painting and sculpture and yeah. literature and everything he does. Yeah. And, of course... Chelichev, Cadmus, Ellie Nottleman, all these people he champions. Exactly. All have an interest in the human form. Right. He's not going to go the way of abstraction no. and painting. And 
so he quite deliberately and and you know he says this outright if painting is going towards abstraction we are going to have the human form in dance mm. and balancing and we're going to preserve the art of the human form and carry it forward in dance mm. That's where it, that's where he's living. Mm -hmm. And Balanchine, who's also been through seeing himself the the body in ruins and has has sort of picked up the you know, and started from the beginning with the sort of sticks and bones of of the old destroyed imperial art form to sort of reconstitute ballet on eventually American bodies. Mm with American bodies. And so they meet on that ground and they, hmm. and they return to each other constantly on that ground. So I came to think of Lincoln and Balanchine as like these, you know, they weren't necessarily friends. Uh, Lincoln was in a way very disappointed by what happened with him with Balanchine because he wanted to be more more artistically involved. Yeah. He, he saw himself as somebody who was going to be... Contributing you know, libretti and yeah. giving him ideas about ballets or scores. Or scores or, or, you know, and bringing in designers and artists that would that Balanchine would want to work with. And, and, and once in a while they would do it. Like and Union Jack is Lincoln a exactly. lot. Exactly. You know, those and kinds of I pieces. think, you know, Lincoln figured out, he, was, he sort of <laughs> understood that Balanchine wasn't going to take it from him. Yeah. And he'd have to go through the back door. And so he would just come, you know, with a pile of books and drop them on Balanchine's desk. And then maybe this would spark Balanchine's interest. Um, books, scores, whatever it was. He was there, but he didn't, even with the disappointment of being excluded from the artistic side, more or less, mm. he stayed. He just stayed. And I came to think of them, you know, after looking at photograph after photograph of the two of them standing, you know, in the wings of the theater, just standing there, not even talking, like side by side, like two trees you know, sort of plotted in the same earth. And they just, you know, it, Lincoln was the longest relationship of Balanchine's life, if you think about it. The longest, most stable relationship, even though they fought, they sometimes didn't get along, they sometimes didn't even notice each other. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they would just tracks. be in parallel tracks. Yeah. But it's also true, I believe, that you know, the New York City Valley would not have happened without Lincoln Kirstein because he was so devoted and he came in at the final hour with his own money, with other people's money. You know, he wasn't practical. <laughs> He put it all on the line. Uh, he yeah. bet the farm multiple times he, he, on the Balanchine he did, enterprise. And it's even hard in some ways to to quantify or to even capture Lincoln's contribution, except to say that he was always there. Mm. That's powerful. That's really powerful. And he also, I mean, in those early years, don't forget, he Balanchine was in... He didn't have papers. He he was he was ill a lot of the time. The TB was not over. He was in and out of hospitals. Um, Lincoln was managing all of that and coordinating it all and using his connections and using his father's connections and mm. all of that made it possible for Balanchine to get settled in the United States. That's at, extraordinary. And get his citizenship in the early forties. And what were some of those things that you, as, as we look at Balanchine coming into the United States, 
what were some of the aspects of American culture that you think he found compelling? I mean, don't forget that America was a kind of uh, dream scene for young Russians, even in the period when Balanchine was was um, first coming into the art world. Mm. And I think he was very taken with um, American movies and with the automobile and speed. And mm. But eventually, I think he was interested in the fact that American dancers or the people who came to him to learn dance came with no preconceptions. Mm. They didn't have a long theatrical tradition with, you know, sort of the Paris Opera or... Royal Danish Ballet. Yeah, the, exactly. The Mariinsky tradition. And something that was present in their civic life. These were young women and men coming from all walks of life, many of them from, certainly not from wealthy parts of life, and unexposed in, in most cases to much culture. They were kind of a blank slate for him, hmm. is what I'm trying to say. Hmm. They didn't have, like, you know, they weren't divas, they didn't have any preconceptions about what what it meant to act or what it meant to perform or what it meant to be, you know, except maybe from the movies. Sure. But they were, they were just them. And so he could work with them without having to erase all of this other hmm. stuff that he was interested in not having, <laughs> you know. So can we just move? Yeah. Do we have to act it out? Do we have to... Um, you know, emote. Do we have to do... No, he didn't want any of that. Yeah. Like, let's just dance. What did you find in your research about his early teaching at the school in the 30s? Well, <laughs> here's a story for you. You know, one day he was so frustrated with the dancers. He's known for having a very controlled temper. Mm. Um, but boy, he had some temperamental outbreaks and he was not exactly, he did have a temper and he, he could get f frustrated, angry. You know, the, these kids couldn't do it and they weren't. So one day he, he can't get them to do what he wants them to do. And so he's so frustrated, he gives them a combination in which the, the combination ends in, in a pique arabesque or an attitude turn yeah, or something yeah, like yeah. that. I can't remember, but something on you know, where you're, you have to be on one leg balancing. Yeah. And um, then he starts the combination and he walks out of the room and he goes home. So they're left standing there on one leg purged, <laughs> purged you know. Teacherless. <laughs> like, what now, you know? I mean, he could be a real taskmaster mm. and very demanding. And I think he already had some idea of how he wanted it to be. So it was an opportunity, like you said, insofar as they may have been kind of like a blank slate, but then it was also a big task. It a was a lot of work. A huge task. A huge task. Do. You know, I mean, Serenade, he had said at one point, um, words to the effect of, I made the ballet so that just to do something that would make them look good because they weren't very good dancers. Yeah. To teach them how to be on stage, teach, teach them how to them, dance. Teach them how to be on stage. I mean, you have these wonderful descriptions of so many of the ballets throughout your book. Is there something you'd like to share with us about Serenade? Because it, really sure. it really feels like it's not Opus 1, because, of course, he had choreographed all throughout that time in Russia and with Yagolev. But in terms of his American choreographic body of work, it is kind of his opus one for these American dancers. Exactly. And it does happen with dancers in the school. I mean, there's this amazing moment, which is well known, but it's worth repeating and mm -hmm. going over because, mm -hmm. you know, the there they are at the school. He's taught class. Yeah. And at the end of class, 
he begins to work on Tchaikovsky's serenade. And he does it with whatever dancers are there. That night. Exactly. That morning, he's got these particular dancers, and that's who he's working with. So he's, he's interested and willing to work with chance mm. and, and a kind of sense of fate. Like, these are the people who are here and now. Let's these dancers, work. this yeah. music, here now. Yeah. Let's get to work. Yeah. And so he starts with those dancers, 17. So they're in that formation that we all know so well of the 17 dancers in the beginning. And then there's the, mm. um, here, mm. maybe I'll read to you from, yes. from one of this part. He began by quietly approaching each dancer, taking her courteously by the arm, as was his natural manner, and escorting her to a spot on the floor. There happened to be 17 women present that day, so he placed them in a pattern for 17, two perfect diamonds of eight with a single dancer at the point joining the two formations. Mm. From the front, every dancer could be seen, like an orange grove in California, he later liked to say. Another day, only nine came to rehearsal, so he made a dance of nine, then six, so six. Then one was late, and so in the dance, a girl arrived late and found her way through the other 16 like a woman lost in a forest of trees. Another day, a girl fell, and her fall became a key dramatic moment in the choreography, too. Then there was one man, so the ballet had one man. Accident and fate were a theme of the dance, and Balanchine also used them in its making. Chance was the greatest tool he had been given in life. No wonder he used it in art. In less than two weeks, like one long breath, the dance was done. Again, he knew the score well. Inside out. He knew it inside out. He had performed it. It had been used for dance before. Folkine's ballet. Exactly. Folkine's ballet. You know, and then there's this ad hoc nature to the the early serenade. Like, they scrambled for costumes. None of the costumes worked out. And Lincoln spent long hours, more or less fruitlessly, with Bal, as he called him in his diary, at (laughs) Bloomingdale's when he tried to make up his mind about costumes for the boys. He complained that Bal had a spoiled boy's vanity, which makes him at once refuse any given suggestions. One must approach him always from behind. Even this is no cinch, as there are always more than two alternatives, says Lincoln in his diary. (laughs) With no solution in sight, Lincoln scoured the racks of Abercrombie's alone and chose some basic shirts. The women would wear practice tunics. Lincoln noted nervously that the ballet was still not firmly set. Bal changes things all the time, right up to the end. (laughs) I love it. I Which, mean, if you zoom out, is true. Because even true. through his whole life, he's tinkering with and changing his ballets and all his the way up to the end of his, saying, of his you know, life. He changed it, he changed it, he changed it. None of this stuff is set in stone. No, revision, None of this revision, stuff. Revision, it's a, it's revision. a live art form, right, right? And Jennifer, 
you you had already talked some about this time where Balanchine and Lincoln are you know doing these precursor companies. I mean, we we can look at them now, call them precursor companies because they come before City Ballet. They didn't think of them as precursor companies. It was like this is what we're trying to do right now. But then he also does this uh, huge body of work between Broadway and Hollywood. What, talk to us about that, Mr. Balanchine. Yeah, I mean, there's another whole sort of. Um, you know, period in his life, and and another path he could have taken, yeah. right? Another way in which life could have been very different, because he's extremely successful on Broadway. He makes many shows, and he works with Rogers and Hart, and he's working with big people, and he's good at it. Yeah. He's really good at it. Yeah. Now, does he think it's where he's going? No. He makes a distinction. At this point, he's involved with with um, the dancer uh, Vera Zarina and uh, marries her and you know there's an extraordinary correspondence between them and he talks in this correspondence about the difference between a commercial art and, a, and an eternal art as he mm-hmm. puts it an eternal art and it's partly a, a dig at Zorina who's angry with you know because their marriage is failing and and he calls her a commercial you know she's a commercial dancer and he's a he's interested in eternal dances mm-hmm. and and that's but that's a true thing, I think, in his mind. There's, mm. there's this world of Broadway, and then, and then he ends up in Hollywood, too, and also with, with success. And he learns a tremendous amount from film, I think, mm. from how, how to see and what you see when you look through a camera and how you cut images and how you take a spectator's eye, because the film can do that. It can take your eye to the place it wants whereas on the stage you had to figure out a way to draw the eye through right. the movement to the place and the music to the place you want mm. so he's he's again studying watching absorbing and i think hollywood is an is an important moment for him and he's working with greg toland who's a cameraman who yeah. is really sort of reinventing the ways in which cameras are used at the time so he's excited about this yeah and he even writes home to his mother you know i think i've got a new way to do the dance on the film wow and and he's excited by it mm. and he loves california <laughs> you know? What about what about California? Because it's free and fun, and there's beautiful women, and, and it's warm, and I mean, all the reasons people love California, right? <laughs> so that is great. I think he has a moment there. Yeah, where it, yeah. And and there's all these emigres there. He's at home. Stravinsky's living there. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, half of Europe has dumped into Hollywood because of the war. You give these amazing mini biographies of many of the dancers and collaborators who Balanchine works with over the course of his career. And what were some of the observations of the kinds of people you observed who were consistently drawn into Balanchine's orbit? Yeah, I mean, this is the this is a, such a crucial point that you make because they chose him as much as he chose them in these early years, especially because these were adventurous people who mm. made their way to New York, who either wanted to dance or somehow stumbled into dancing, especially in the case of the men. In many cases, maybe Lincoln would say, "I saw somebody at the Y the other day," and and it really could be a dancer, and so then they'd call him up. And Many of the women in particular came from broken families or mm. people, families without fathers. Mm. I was struck by how 
often this was the case. In these early years, there was a lot of dancers from emigre families as well, especially from East Central Europe and that whole region where dance already was a respected and known form. So it was a kind of interesting group of young people who wanted to do something and were willing to sort of throw themselves into, as you put it, Balanchine's orbit. And many of them stayed for a very long time. And they were very loyal. And they sometimes passed into other roles in the company. Yeah. Because Balanchine was always looking for people's talent and what could they do and what were they good at. Mm. And so I think he could nurture people in lots of different directions. I mean, this was part of the whole idea Mm -hmm. that you and I were talking about earlier about building a company and the idea of a company. He, He had started in Russia you know, in his youth, really, making the young ballet. And this this company was almost a collective. Hmm. You know, they all um, were paid the same. They all helped each other if there were health needs. They worked on costumes together. It was, a, you know, a sort of rough-and-tumble company. They yeah. were just starting. This whole idea of how do you bring a group of people together with very little money, with very few resources, you can't offer them much. Mm. What you can offer them is the project of making art. Mm. And that's what they were there for. And you go into that in great depth and with great insight in this chapter called Disciplining the Body, where you talk about Balanchine forming his... American company. This is really now in the period where the ballet society that he and Lincoln found, that they are then invited to become the resident company of City Center. That's when they become New York City Ballet, 1948. And then this this process of then disciplining the body, building a company, building a body of dancers who have a training that he can then build new repertory out of. Could you talk to us about that? It's so rich, yeah, so Yeah, I mean, it's exactly as you say. And I mean, maybe I'll just read you the opening yeah, of this chapter, Disciplining the Body, which begins. It was a closed world. The first rule was secrecy. What went on behind company walls stayed behind company walls. The astonishing thing was just how quickly the walls grew up around them and how enduring and fortress-like they became. Without anyone quite knowing how it happened, Balanchine made them the wardens of their collective secrets. It was a way of circling them around and demarcating the boundaries of loyalty to one another and to the dance. The second rule was devotion to the work they were doing through him. Anything else was a distraction. The task they were facing was enormous and he demanded their full attention. His job was to make them into dancers, which was not merely a matter of teaching them how to perform better balletic steps and poses. It was a matter of sculpting with them a whole person, mind, body, and soul, and it began with training and the ritual daily class. The idea was to make their ordinary civilian bodies, Mm -hmm. as one dancer put it, into something extraordinary. So Mm -hmm. this idea of remaking the human body which is not a gentle process necessarily, as any dancer knows, and requires a form of discipline and commitment that's almost monastic. Absolutely. Not just a year or two, but many years, maybe a decade to make a dancer. 
uh, these dancers were made in less time because they didn't have time. Mm. Um, you know, the process, here's one way yeah. that, that I thought to describe it. Yeah. It was akin to Plato's counsel to lovers to never stop chipping away and honing the stone of the body to reveal its true beauty and form. Quote, working on their statues, as one neoplatonist philosopher put it, to carve away excess flesh and to polish and make smooth their bodies until they had become, quote, holy themselves, nothing but true light. It was a kind of mystical thinking in which the fallenness of the body was seen as thickened with an unrefined matter, what Balanchine sometimes called fat. The real body was the inner luminous body of pure light. Even light had a shape, and the goal of carving away or shedding the thickened exterior was to reveal this inner light body. Mm. What was revealed was not, as Balanchine saw it, some abstract idea of pure soul or even an idealized perfect form but a clear and sharpened sensuality. This body was a refined human instrument. It could see, smell, hear, touch, and taste more and hmm. more accurately. Dancing paired the body, honed the musculature, subtly shifted bones. Training was transformation, and working with Balanchine involved a kind of metamorphosis, hmm. entangled with pain, self-destruction, and shame, but also with desire and joy. Hmm. External form could even harmonize a fractured inner life, at least in the moment of dancing. Hmm. It didn't erase a person's faults or dull her anxieties, but it did hold out the promise of a more ordered soul. At peak, the dancer felt fluid and strong, integrated, coordinated, and above all, clarified. Even the salty sweat purged through the ritual exercise of daily class felt like an unburdening, a purification that set a dancer apart from her unholy and civilian self. She was a different creature, part of a tribe, a chosen member of art. Wow. So, I mean, I think there was like a... Well, I don't know. You, you tell me what you think. I mean, this I, no, but it, it resonates. It, does this resonate? it so yeah. resonates because you're, like you said, you're chipping away. You're trying to eliminate excess. You're trying to become more and more articulate in your body, more and more expressive in your body. And like you touched on, it is very monastic. I've thought about that a lot, and it, and truly so. Like you're doing an in, a deeply individual work. Nobody else can get into fifth position for you. It's your body, but you're in this kind of cloistered community yeah, with exactly. other people who are committed to a similarly devotional and rigorous and all-consuming kind of enterprise in service of something that is beyond and never fully attainable. So that's the dynamism every day. It's like, you know, there's never a moment of arrival in some perfect form, but there's a constant pursuit that keeps everything... <laughs> Like we talked about before, it keeps the whole building here at the City Ballet and a dancer, period, but especially in this kind of uh, ethos of the City Ballet, like on the balls of the feet, you know, ready to pounce, trying to keep pushing forward, take it further, take the movement further, become clearer, become swifter, become more expressive, become more beautiful. And the idea of metamorphosis, I think, is very powerful. Yeah, I think it's key to the whole, the yeah. whole pursuit. And, in, and any number of the Balanchine disciples who were my teachers or our teachers in this post-Balanchine generation or of the people that you worked with or have interviewed, so many of them, that's their, their read on their journey with Mr. B, is that metamorphosis. 
no, and exactly. devotion, the, the supremacy of devotion to yeah, the work. Yeah, and it comes with cruelty and it comes with pain. Mm. And it's not easy to take that on as a young person. Mm. You know, and the dancers were often very, very young teenagers. You know, it's a moment when the body is naturally changing and forming. And then you're trying to form it from the outside as well, mm. or from the inside. Were there anecdotes from any number of your interviewees who helped illuminate that process for you? Oh, so many. This whole chapter on disciplining the body is, is very much drawn from the accounts that I had from dancers of what it was like. You know, the amazing things that he would say in class, and yeah. the, both, both the sort of philosophical interludes that he would make that I think drove some of them a little bit crazy because they'd be getting standing there getting cold while mm. he would just be talking about the metaphors, many of them about food. And mm. um, here, I'm just trying to find some of them yeah. now. He talked a lot. To illustrate a point, he told involved stories as their muscles grew cold about animals, about spiders, monkeys, cats, cheetahs, or from literature. He mm. told stories from mm. Ovid, from Gogol, from mm. the philosopher Uspensky. Mm. He used phrases from TV commercials. Mm. When they were lazy, he asked them for the full 99 beans of coffee or more pork sausages, mom. <laughs> you know, these are all from commercials yeah. from, the, from the moment. Yeah. And love to give them images of food. Can't you be like baked ham with marshmallows? He asked Tanny one day. And then he told her, your legs look like asparagus, cooked asparagus. To correct the dancer's grand plié, he turned to Pat Wilde. What's that vegetable you grind up and, it, and it's hot? She told him. And he said, ah, yes, you look like horseradish. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, and, and he would say things like, don't be so boring. Mm. Do you speak that way? Mm. And he would say that, do you speak that way? In a moment, you know, mm, in a mm, sort of mm. droning monotone. Don't yeah. be zombies. Wake up. Wake up. When you speak, you accent, you accent certain syllables. A sentence will have different meanings depending on where you place the accent. How do you feel? How do you feel? How do you feel? How do you feel? Yeah. I mean, he, he would go through all of this yeah. with them, you know, or when a dancer extended her leg over her head, you know, like one of these sort of very yeah, yeah. flexible, nonchalant, yeah. like got it over the head. He would say, he said to her, you must participate and present it like it's your leg. Hmm. The, rattlesnake, the rattlesnake's head is 50 feet away from his tail, but he knows that his tail is shaking. <laughs> so, so you know, know what you're doing. Body. Don't just stick it up there. That's right. Right. That's right. The, the intentionality of the, the movement. intentionality the of, awareness of every of the extension body. of every movement. So I mean, I you know the stories, the parables. It was a an interesting way of teaching, yeah. and I think also you know by example and and some of his stories were mean mm. and about people, and mm. so he, he, I think it was a difficult. It was difficult to, yeah. to, to, it was demanding. Yeah. You had to really want to be there. Yeah. <laughs> Very demanding. And the fruit that then came out of it was like there he was building his vocabulary, building his dancers so that he could build these ballets. Yeah. And, and you know, over and over again, I just come back to the idea that it was him, but it was them. Mm. Because really, you know, if they, they the hadn't ballets. pushed themselves in the way that they pushed themselves... He wouldn't have gotten there. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I think his emphasis always on, you know, without the dancers, there are no dances. Right. The relationship between them, you know, 
was, of course, that he was the the artistic force and mm. and there he was leading things and he he was an autocrat in many ways, but it was also a kind of anarchy and they mm. and they you know if it was Pygmalion, he handed the chisels to them to sculpt their own bodies, as you mm. were saying, no one's mm. going to put you in fifth you're going you to do, to do that, that yourself yeah. so they were partners in this and he depended on them so much i mean yeah. this is why the whole thing about not wanting them to have boyfriends or get married or have children and, and some of them did anyway and obviously yeah. many of them did right but he was jealous of every part of he wanted their full commitment to dance hmm. He was giving his full commitment to dance. He mm. wanted theirs. Mm. And he knew he couldn't make the dances without them. And if one of them left, I mean, replacing him or her it could be years. To, to retrain, to, retra to, tra to, train, to train along the yeah, next person so these to take people up the mantle. were essential, mm. essential to his, his artistic output. Yeah, yeah. And then among these extraordinary dancers, there were a few throughout his life who he married. Indeed. Who <laughs> was married multiple times. And um, could you give us insight into each of these women? Tamara Jiva, Alexandra Danilova, Vera Zarina, Maria Tall, Chief Tanakila Claire. It's almost like a it's like it's his biography in miniature right there. And yeah. what each of them represented in his life and what the dynamics of those marriages were. And how they inform the art and vice versa. I mean, look, I think you know, each one is, yeah, it is a huge question. I think each one was different and, and they're, um, each one was so complex. And I, I do go into that in, in some great detail in the book mm -hmm. because it's so important. Mm -hmm. And as you say, each one of them was a dancer and a dancer that was crucial at that Point moment in his, in his life. Yeah. And, and they weren't just dancers, they were really interesting and in many cases great dancers so there was something about the full life quality of that and I think um, being married to George Balanchine was by their own accounts not an easy thing mm -hmm. because he was so focused on them as artists and as dancers that and you know mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, there was definitely, you know, Devalanchine loved to cook, as everybody knows. So there's a, a, there was a whole domestic culture around that and entertaining. Mm. But, but I think the, the crucial thing about the marriages is that there's, that most of them, except the one with Tannekill, didn't last. They were quite brief, you know, four to six years, let's say, on average. <laughs> And they would either not work because he was moving on artistically and there was some other dancer that he was also falling in love with. I mean, the relationship between eros and art, of course, is is an ancient concept. And, mm. and it was certainly a very big one his in his life. life. I mean, he really believed, I think, you know, that, and this was his original attraction also to Mayakovsky, hmm. is that, you know, uh, who also believed this, that a, that a woman can unlock the art. Hmm. And he needed that. And so he needed hmm. to be in love in some way or to have some kind of, and, and erotics is important in this as well. So there's a complicated and 
at times difficult relationship between who they were as women and who they were as dancers. Mm-hmm. And they, they had to work that out, each one of them, for themselves. And, you know, he said they all left me, but not totally true. Uh, you know, he was often leaving them by the time they left him. It's each case by case. Uh, we can walk through it if you want. But yeah. I mean, even if just in brief, because I feel like brief, if it's, you can't I mean, account you know, for his and, whole and life the, without these, these women. You know, it's almost like the, you know, yeah. the, you can't. You can't. And, and the, the phases of his art, if you will, the, you know, the, the blue period, the red, the yeah, whatever, like you know, it's like Picasso. I mean, there's, there's a certain relationship between the forms that his art is taking and the forms that his love is taking. I mean, his first wife, Tamara Jiva, of course, was part of his Russian world, yeah. and, and he married very young. And uh, her father was also a very important figure for Balanchine because he was very involved in radical artistic culture mm. in, in St. Petersburg at the time and in later in revolutionary culture. So the, there was a whole sort of package there, and she was a dancer, and she was, but she was outside of the imperial theaters. She mm. was not uh, either trained or good enough, I'm not sure, mm. you know, to be part of that world, but, but gave her a freedom that Balanchine, I think, liked. And I mean, there's actually a great story that she tells about their early relationship that I think encapsulates some of this, where, you know, he, he walks her home one day after after rehearsal or something, and, and they're having tea in the, the salon. Her, her parents are, are not there, and she thinks this is the moment where the, you know, the kiss is going to happen. And he walks up to her, and, and he says, maybe in the ballet you could do something more like this. So he's still thinking about her as a dancer. In the, in the choreography. Yeah, yeah, and she's... And she's, she's thinking about life. And he's thinking, thinking about, about the choreography. Yeah, and for him it's all part of it's the same thing. And so there's this always this this tension in these relationships, you know. Maria Tallchief. Well, if we want to go in order, no, but let's go in order because okay. I think it's so illuminating. D- Danilova. Danilova. So Danilova, you know, your teacher. They, yeah. They Later, they, yeah. they immigrate. There, Danilova's with him. Has been with him at this at the theater school in Russia. They're brought up together. They know each other so well. She's a great dancer. She's a better dancer than Tamara Jiva. Mm. And they're all with the Ballet Russe now. And Jiva's just not enough for him. And as a dancer, he's interested in Danilova. He's interested in her musicality. He's interested in her. He does Apollo for her, crucial ballet. Mm. So they become involved. None of them have papers, so it's a common law marriage. Mm. Uh, it doesn't last. I mean, I had a chart on my wall, you know, how many years, years yeah. each one lasted. And I have it in the book. I can't remember the exact right yeah. now, but but it's not that long, you know, with Danilova. And then, I mean, their lives are chaotic. Diaghilev dies. She goes off. He's off in the sanatorium. It's a difficult moment. They grow apart. Mm. He meets Vera Zorina who is really Brigitte Hartwig, who, right. who comes from a broken family. Her father has died. Her mother is in a state of crisis. Her own life is difficult. She's just had a long affair with Leonid Massine, who's... Kind of like Balanchine's choreographic rival in so many ways in those early years. Very much Europe. Balanchine's yeah. choreographic rival. Yeah. And although he, he never liked to admit it, he, I think, felt the rivalry. And Massine was famous and doing much better at that moment than Balanchine was mm. in terms of public acclaim. 
So, you know, there's Vera Zorina, who's actually still in love with Massine, and then she marries Balanchine, and Balanchine's madly in love with her. And she just doesn't love him the same way. And so he's miserable. And the letters, I mean, the excerpts from the letters all throughout your book are quite illuminating, but the ones he writes to her are quite tragic. Oh, the ones he writes to her, I mean, I wept reading them. And they're amazing documents because, you know, she kept them. These are his letters to her, and they're written in this broken English with, you know, obviously very poorly spelled. And uh, he's still learning. He can't really communicate with her in the fullness of his heart mm. and uh, he's tormented he's tormented by her mm. he adores her she won't it's a heartbreaking kind of story for mm. him and they end up separating and then eventually uh, divorcing he then eventually marries maria Tallchief. Right? I'm yeah. in order, right? You're going in order, that's right. <laughs> Native American he, background. He, he marries yeah. Maria Talchief. This is the early years. He, he meets her when he's still working uh, sort of freelance and yeah. doing Broadway and doing, working with the, the Ballet Russe company that exists in, in the United States right. at the time. And he works with her, and she's quite a bit younger. And I mean, as he gets older, they are still young, each one. So the distance between him and his wives is growing. growing. There's just a bigger gap in the in the marriage. And, and he's even quite matter of fact about Maria. I mean, she's so beautiful. And I think he, he really feels they can have this working relationship. And he's also very, he's just so taken with her. And and really desires her company and her presence and her, her the power of her dance. She was a very powerful dancer. Yeah, yeah. I know this even from working yeah, with her. Yeah, because she was your director. She you was worked my with her director, director. and yeah. I worked with her, and I saw her body and her way of working and her intensity of spirit. And, mm. and he was also very taken with her Native American background, and he, he was himself trying to become American and understand mm. what is this country. Mm. And he loved it that he could go to Oklahoma to the Osage Reservation and, and visit her, her, her grandmother. You know, I mean, it's a difficult story, her family story. It's a story of the brokenness of a Native American tribe and the oil and the wealth and the, and people being taken the greed and the ways in which the country took advantage of that and, and helped to destroy this, this civilization. But in a way, you know, I mean, they were both coming from destroyed civilizations and and they had that in common and almost intuitively but uh, you know i think mainly he just could see the power of her dancing Mm. and she's his firebird she's his firebird (laughs) she's his sanguinic (laughs) she's his sugar plum thank you exactly it's like these women are the ballets these ballets they are they are the ballets are these women yeah yeah and it's a perfect moment for him because he needs her she's a star yeah. And she's got star power. Yeah. You know, she's got charisma yeah. that is going to fill the house and bring it down, which it did with Firebird. And Firebird was not his favorite ballet. Here's an old Diaghilev creation that, you know, just exactly what he didn't want to do. But he's yeah. got this young company. He needs some successes. Yeah. She's the perfect Firebird. And he sees that. And they've got Stravinsky. And it's, it, it works. It's the first blockbuster of the and, New York City ballet. Exactly. Thank you. 
him straying towards Tanakil de Clare, another, you know, wow, what a, what a talent, what a, what a different kind of dancer. And Maria was his sanguinic and Tanny is his choleric. Literally, it's the same ballet. Yeah. yeah, and his second movement symphony in C. That's you right. Know? Also, his wild girl. I mean, his anti-classical. His head of the Bacchants and Orpheus head of the ripping Orpheus's exactly. head off. And just an interesting and daring and quirky humor, and quirky. first movement bore fantastic. So he's straying, she's straying. They annul the the marriage because she's Catholic, and that's what she wants. And you know, he settles her into her new apartment, and off they go. I, I mean, all of the wives kind of stick around, and and uh, they it's not like they don't ever speak to him again or something. No. They, they they kind of get it. They're all part of the story. Yeah, they're all time. part of the story, and they're tough women. They're really tough women. Mm-hmm. And so then there's Tanny. I mean, Tanny, the great tragedy in the middle of his life and, the, and in, of course, her life. He, I think he, he falls very much for her dancing and for her spirit and her sardonic humor. Mm-hmm. Really, I mean, her letters are something to read. She was a great writer. She brought out in him his most radical side. I mean, he did some very strange ballets with her, the Schoenberg Ballet. It's called Opus 34. Maybe I'll read you a Dude. small section from, from what that was like. Because yeah, because it's a piece none of us have seen. It's a piece none or, of us have yeah. seen. But I'm taking this from descriptions, from uh, sort of anything I could piece, piece together, together in an archive, yeah. from yeah. pictures. So this is about Balanchine's Opus 34 from 1954, set to Schoenberg's 12-tone accompaniment to a cinema to graphic scene, Opus 34. Mm. So this is like an old and minor score, but Balanchine decided to use it because he was interested in it, and he was interested in the whole 12-tone musical innovation. And he does this this ballet for Tanny, and the first part, the dancers called it the worm part. Mm. And it was for 13 dancers in white with this black thing or tube which slithered downstage, lit with pale green and lavender downlights designed by Jean Rosenthal to look as if coal had come alive and was coal was just like slithering down the stage. And then the second part is for Tanny and Herbert Bliss. And it begins like this. They're, they're a brother and a sister, mm. and they're standing alone on an empty and darkened stage. Their backs to the audience. They're walking away into the darkness, but a witch appears and pulls them back. Mm. Suddenly, with the abrupt logic of a nightmare, they're lying on large operating tables, surrounded by doctors and nurses in white coats under a bright surgical light. With outsized forceps and reams of blood-stained bandages, the doctors are flaying their bodies like a platonic hole cut in two. Mm. Tanny's half emerges as a 
gray skeletal cross-section with exposed nerves and innards printed on her front and a wig of floor-length silken hair. Mm. Bliss is the other half, cross-cut to show muscles and arteries. Their faces are eerily flattened by tight nylon stockings pulled over their heads. These feeble creatures reach out but can't find each other and are intermittently swallowed up by Rosenthal's black, slithery heap of something viscous. At the end, Bliss mechanically straps his half-body into a tubular bag and is lifted up into the light. Tanny, alone on the stage, wraps herself in a bloodied cloth he has left behind. Suddenly, she turns her back to the audience, Mm. and a battery of powerful Klieg lights hit her on her head, set fire to her, and erect. She paces into this light. The audience is blinded, too, and on the opening night, people screamed. It was like flinging something foul into their faces, like a pail of cold filth, one dancer recalled. Wow. So this is a really, you know, this is the kind of imagination that he could go with Tanny from a sort of injured swan of Swan Lake because she hated swan dancing Swan Lake and mm. he made her dance Swan Lake to make her stronger to this kind of thing. I mean, and, you know, and then to Western Symphony. Yeah. It's an amazing yeah. inspiration yeah. to him and it's yeah. an amazing departure from what he had done with Maria mm. Tall Chief. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and then, of course, their marriage is already, by most accounts, sort of a bit on the rocks. And she's a, she's a really outgoing, adventurous young woman. Yeah. And she's got her own ideas about what she wants, you know. But they're on tour in Europe, and uh, as, as most people who, who love Balanchine know, Tanny contracts polio. This is 1956, the same year that the vaccine came out, and she did not take the vaccine, unfortunately. Most of the dancers did, but she did not because she did not want to feel ill while she was dancing. She contracted polio, and uh, uh, an obvious crisis ensued. No one was sure she would live. Balanchine took a year or more off from the company and to care for her. Um, Their marriage, uh, amazingly, continued for another almost 10 years. So this tragedy and crisis in, in their lives and in her life did not end their marriage in, as one might expect it would mm. if he was going to move on to the next the dancer. Next years, he was yeah. devoted to, to Tanakeel. And there were complicated reasons for that, but um, including his feeling of obligation towards her and mm. of, of guilt at the idea of leaving her. Uh, he eventually does leave her uh, for Suzanne Farrell, but, or he thinks for Suzanne Farrell. <laughs> uh, but she is the fifth and final wife, yeah. and there are other relationships, right. but there are the wives. Those are the wives. And there's quite an image at the end of his life, yeah. you know, when he, after he dies at the funeral mm. of these women, mm. minus notably Vera Zorina, Mm. who did not attend the funeral and was the one who loved him probably the least. Mm. And, um, but the other four standing there together at this funeral, and as one person who attended the funeral noted to me, all of them dry-eyed. They had that the sort of discipline and composure that mm. their training had given them, and mm. and they knew and that in some way their presence there was 
private for them. Hmm. Private. Wow. Whatever was going on inside was yeah. theirs, yeah. and the rest was a performance. You could interpret it as cold, hmm. but maybe better to say a little bit abstract. Hmm. Hmm. You know, they're not going to emote here, just as they're not going to emote in the dances. Mm. So there, these women were were formidable. I mean, there's an extraordinary quote that goes with that, where Danilova is, is quoted in 1983, the year Balanchine died, and she said, I lasted longer because my dedication went deeper. My dedication, like Balanchine's, goes very, very deep. And she's talking about how, I mean, even though they weren't married anymore, she taught in his school for years. She was your teacher, you know? She yeah. was part of his world, exactly. still teaching what she knew from her Yeah, I learned a tremendous career, amount from her, and I used to go to her house, and I used to go to her apartment and have tea with her and, and listen to her stories, you know, because I was interested in all this stuff even then. Yeah. There's another image of Danilova that, um, that somebody who was at the funeral gave me, which I will never forget, which is that after the body had been, uh, you know, the casket had been lifted into the, the car that was going to take it to the burial ground and it was moving down the street, Danilova could be seen trailing after the car, following it. Mm. Like her, her, she couldn't quite let go, you know, mm. the, you know. Well, and then, I mean, it's, it's quite extraordinary to think about because then one of Balanchine's most important works directly flows from this trauma with Tandy, and that's Agon. And so I would love to hear your insights about Agon yeah, Agon. Agon is a very seminal ballet, yeah. you know. It's like the atom-splitting ballet of the 20th century. It's Agon. You put it very right? well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is an extraordinary work. Abstract, a collaboration with Stravinsky, a, a score that's partially 12-tone. Uh, the costumes are stripped down. Practice I mean, the, the practice clothes, um, 12 dancers, 12-tone music, four men, eight women no plot this very modern score that he's making with Stravin that Stravinsky is making for the dance they're doing this together Stravinsky's in the rehearsal room with them there are famous photos of this right. of this collaboration uh, Balanchine is in awe of Stravinsky and in his element and this is all happening as you say in 1957 the year after Tanny was stricken and it's, it's part of his return, and it's part of the whole idea that, that I came to see as a theme, and it happens over and over again, that at moments of great loss and disruption and tragedy even in his own life comes an outpouring. Of extraordinary work. Of extraordinary work and creativity. And Agon mm. is, is part of that. Mm. It comes also at a crucial moment in American history. It's the Civil Rights Movement. You know, it's a key moment in the Civil Rights from 1957. It's around the Little Rock Crisis. There's still segregation everywhere, as we know. And he has cast in it Arthur Mitchell, the uh, first principal black dancer of the New York City Ballet and his only uh, black male dancer at the time. And sort of the very cold and very white Diana Adams, uh, who he's in love with also. 
and this is a, a kind of trio with, with Tanny, and the, he, he's very passionately in love with Diana Adams when he makes this, and yet he's also m kind of mourning Tanny, and so there's a, this, this ballet is very much in Tanny's spirit. The things that Tanny's own dancing brought to Balanchine are all in this dance. Her, her sort of leggy, experimental, a little bit wild but contained, Diana brought the containment, <laughs> uh, is, is all there. And then there's this pas de deux, just very intimate, very sexualized, but in a detached, um, almost objectified way between a black man and a white woman at a moment when this just would not be okay mm. on most stages, mm. even in the North. So that's Agon, and I, I mean, it's, it's, it's also interestingly got a, a score that, and Lincoln, here's Lincoln's involvement, right? Lincoln is sending books to Stravinsky and sending books to Balanchine, and he's, Balanchine's got this interest, and Stravinsky especially, we know, has this interest in 17th century early dance forms. You know, in 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 Luli and the Baroque, right. and he's using this as a, a sort of inter interest and impulse for the score, and he's quoting even. And Balanchine is going back to really simple forms. I mean, the ballet begins with walking. Mm -hmm. That's those, those are the first steps. Mm -hmm. Are those? There's four men with their backs to the audience, and then you know the first count is a is a downbeat silence, and then they turn and go, and the walk. It's also back to that simple, the basics of classical form and of the physical form of, of ballet and also of everyday life. liken it to being, you know, Duchamp was in the audience and he said it was like being, you know, in Paris or the Rite of Spring or something. Wow. And it was a smash hit. No, no one thought it would be. <laughs> and for the dancers, it was it was a huge challenge because the counts were tough and they had never heard music like this before. So they, you know, and they didn't get much rehearsal, as and it's usual. Not like they, and it's not like they could get the music file. Like, they had only ever heard a piano reduction. Exactly. You know? <laughs> they had they never heard, heard the orchestral, and the yeah. orchestral yeah. score. Yeah. And so they were, you know, and they each had their own counts and different counts, and there were even, you know, competing counts, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and they're all hissing the counts under their breath as they dance. And uh, so it, it's an amazing thing, and, and this is a this is sort of a try me trying to sum up you know a little bit what was accomplished by this ballet. Yeah. On a more personal level, Agon revealed Balanchine's innermost ambition. It came from the thing he had come to care about most: service, service to music, to women, to dancers, to Tanny, and to God. Wasn't it all the same thing? Every dance has many authors. And Balanchine never stopped saying that without his dancers, he would have no dances. It was they who absorbed his pulse and timing, his gestures and images, his dance. He moved through them. In these moments, he had no individuality, no manness, no self. 
He was all cloud, no trousers. And those months and years of near, pos- near impossible ballet classes, all those classes we talked about, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. had broken his dancers of excess. They were trained to execute steps as accurately and precisely as possible, nothing more. Who had time to do anything in Agon but count and stay alive? Which does not mean that their individuality was erased. Mm -hmm. To the contrary, Balanchine built the dances around who they were. He just didn't want them to add anything extra to who they were. No sauce, no affectation, no drama, no acting, no interpretation. On stage that night, he resolved the paradox. They were at once themselves and a company of selfless dancers in service to Agon. Mm. Even a ballet could be an emanation of God. It was a moment. Balanchine had become Balanchine. The question of Agon was the question of ballet itself. What is this thing that banishes fear and pain and yet is itself based on fear and pain, that admits no bestiality and yet is itself bestial or at least animalistic? that hangs its harmonious bodies like angels in blue light but screams flesh and blood, that coldly strips the body of ornament and display, fabric and costumes, removing once and for all all of that from the clothes civility of society, that insists that the deed, the dance, is greater than the word, and that a dance has no past, only a fleeting present. You will not glimpse these creatures in all the history of art, Who are these strangely voluptuous and depleted figures seemingly bent on weight and their own physical and erotic presence, but also on disappearance into the nothingness of spirit and air? Mm. Agon was one answer. Mm. That night, everyone was nervous and on edge. The dancers had barely heard the music with the full orchestra. Everything sounded different than it had in the piano rehearsals, and one dancer recalled her panic. Oh, my God, where are my counts? They had to concentrate and listen very, very hard. Their eyes were trained on Barzin, who conducted, and was their only lifeline. Meanwhile, the musicians were concentrating and listening hard, too. Barzin was not a Stravinsky expert, and the orchestra had their own troubles with the irregular tempos and complicated demands of the new score. Add to this the blinding, bright lights hitting the dancers at eye level from the wings as they hissed competing versions of the counts. Diana and Melissa Hayden held two opposing factions, and they tried to keep up and stay together, and it was no wonder that many recall feeling unnervingly exposed and alone on the empty stage that night with no plot, no costumes, only those elusive counts to hold on to. One dancer later said that it was like being on the high peak of a mountain or balancing on a platform suspended in light.
That's like the ultimate icon yes, ballet. Yeah, 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 <laughs> it's like talking that, about lit yeah, from behind right, right. coming towards the audience. Yeah. I, I, well, I'm, it's I'm, just such a groundbreaking ballet. I mean, it's not that he hadn't done other ballets that that were what we now call the black and whites uh, before, but this one really changed the whole structure of his work mm. going forward. Mm. I was watching it last night on the train in light of talking to you about it, and it's just so genius. The structure and the whole part in the first movement where 10 of the dancers keep doing one phrase, and he has two exchange places and another two exchange places as the other 10 keep continuing the same phrase, but different groupings of two keep running and retaking each other's. I mean, the, the structure is unbelievable, and it's so ballet. It's glissade, glissade, and passe, and antichassis, and step across, and antichassis. It's, it's so good. Right. It's but it's so... also walk, walk, walk. Yeah, and it's exactly. also, I mean, we haven't talked about this yet, but it's also the spherical space, the, the mm. off-balance movement, mm-hmm. the way in which the, mm-hmm. the center does not hold, and the way in which mm. the, the movement is throughout Balanchine's career, really, was informed by African-American culture and by African-American movement and styles, which interested him deeply. And he drew, you know, heavily on jazz and other kinds of, even tap dance and other kinds of of movement that he was seeing, again, the watcher, you know, we might say today expropriating, but... Really absorbing, mm. and and mm. Uh, you know at the time, I mean these were not this was not the language that people had, and he was he he was just taking whatever he he saw. Mm. Can and you talk was, about that more? Because that was, is one of the great through lines of Balanchine's work. Yeah, it is. I mean, even Concerto Barocco, you know, Absolutely. has these is is like swinging Bach. Going to hear Hazel Scott play Bach. He was very influenced by that kind of work, and the yeah, Hazel Scott and others. his own money into doing uh, Cabin in the Sky, an all-black musical. Mm-hmm. With Catherine Dunham. With Catherine Dunham, which was, he admired Dunham enormously, and I think he was greatly influenced by her. Mm. Um, and, you know, his, his approach, as far as I can tell, to that musical was really, you know, he was the, the director and choreographer, but he basically let them do what they wanted. And he was especially interested in the ways in which they moved when they were just goofing off in between in the rehearsals and in the times when they weren't Mm. doing the official steps. It's an odd thing, right? There's basically a team of Russians. Yeah. 
and then an all black cast and an all black cast hmm. and and Balanchine you know it's a huge success Cabin in the Sky and and I think he was using it to learn whatever he could hmm. so this this theme of pulling in from all kinds of sources you know we've talked about Hollywood and Broadway right and his involvement also with with African-American culture was profound. So this is a whole sort of theme that works its way through the book in, in yeah. at various moments. He's yeah. going back to that and pulling it out again, pulling it out again. You, you can see it in the work. And as you look at the body of works now as a historian, this, this, at least the 75 that we have ready access to and that the City Ballet is so devoted to dancing so many of them, what are some of those recurring themes that you keep seeing coming back in the ballets? Like you touched on loss earlier. You know, this in a way was part of the challenge of the book because I, th- I think it's true that the dances speak for themselves. Mm. But I did try to translate in a way into words yeah. to evoke them. Right. Not translate, but evoke them in words. And, I mean, the themes for, you're right, that loss is a theme in the ballets as well as being an emotion that brought Balanchine into new work. Certainly unrequited love, mm-hmm. right? We know this, that dancers over, yeah. <laughs> over and over again, there's a sense of unrequited love. The eternal feminine. I think is one, you know, ballet is woman, this, this much quoted statement that he certainly believed in and, and, and made. It's one of the main themes of his life and art. Yeah. Did you find as you were going through your research that one or two or maybe a small number of the ballets you came to appreciate on an even deeper level? I mean, so many of them, Yeah. you know. But, you know, for example, I mean, yeah. studying a ballet like Serenade, which we've talked out about a little bit, yeah. is just so gratifying and so um, illuminating because mm. in, in that ballet, there are so many things. There's the way in which he changed Tchaikovsky's score. You know, he moved the movements around. We all think of, of Balanchine as being so pure to music and, and devoted to the the tempos, the, those exact tempos that were given in the score. But he moved music around all the time, and he cut it. And he, he cuts the first movement out of the Polish symphony. That's why this diamond starts mm-hmm. with a waltz. Exactly. Yeah. Midsummer Night's Dream is a is a is a collage a of, of different of different pieces from Mendelssohn. And so in Serenade, you have that Balanchine's use of the score yeah. for his own ends, and then you have you know his use of art. For his own ends, the the images from Canova in in Serenade are direct lift yeah. from uh, from sculpture, and then the whole idea of the dark angel, which is a something that he basically invents. But the idea of an angel and of blindness and of sight mm. and of I mean, these are biblical themes. This is a and they're in Serenade, and they're in Orpheus, and they're in the the last moment yeah, of the I mean, second aria of Stravinsky Violin Concerto. Yeah, they're eternal so themes. Yeah. They're they're everything themes. Yeah, eternal dances. E- eternal dances, exactly. And then the ways in which it changed over the years. You know, the costumes are this, then they're that, then they're another thing, yeah. and then the 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 dancers change so then the movement changes a little bit and then finally in 1952 you get the 
the Karinska costumes, which we now think of as as forever. Now, when you think about the New York City Ballet as an institution, we talk about that for a little bit. Like, what is what are some of Balanchine's characteristics as an artistic director, and his leadership of this this big institution that grows? Like, you know, it starts kind of scrappily, but with time, with incredible Ford Foundation funding and this extraordinary theater that we're sitting in right now this avant-garde man becomes head of a major cultural institution. What are some of the dynamics of that? Yeah, that's a moment for him. I <laughs> mean, huge. or a long moment for him because, you know, he had been scrappy and on the edge for so long, and in a way his whole identity was tied to that, and I think he worried a lot about becoming uh, mainstream, becoming an institution rather than a forward-looking thing that was... And he also was an exile, an emigre, and he, he had that sort of, you know, I can move on. I can go anywhere. I can always pick up my bags and leave. And so it was a moment of, there's, there's good evidence that he was pretty nervous about this, mm. about this whole thing while also embracing it. The support. And, you know, you're right to emphasize, I think, so much. I mean, he, he built a repertory of dances and a, you know, he was an artist of the dance primary and foremost, but he also built an institution because in order to make dances, he needed an institution. This is a Cold War pursuit, too. It's an anti-Soviet, anti, you know, we're going to beat the Soviets on their own game. And they have the Bolshoi and the Mariinsky. Well, we've got the New York City Ballet. Yeah. And, and we so, did it in 10 years, and they and did it in 300 or something. Exactly. The time it took, you know, it took, it took centuries, basically, for kings and, and czars to build these theaters and make them what they are. And, and, and he built it in a, in a, a single lifetime. Mm. And he built it in a democratic society. It's a really interesting study, I think, in this sort of conjunction of some kind of anarchy and uh, real autocracy. I mean, he, he led this thing. He was the final word on mm-hmm. anything, yeah. if he wanted to be, mm-hmm. and certainly on artistic matters. Mm-hmm. Um, but he gave people a lot of rain and a lot of latitude. He had to. He had very small staff. And a very small, um, you know, he, the, everybody was always operating, doing many things at the same time. Yeah. And I think he believed in it, too. It was just the way he treated his dancers. Once he gave it to you, it was yours. Mm. Go, run with it, mm. you know. This is our place, he would say. Mm. Do what you want. Mm. We do what we want here. Yeah. He, he was interested not in creating some kind of airtight place where perfect jewels were were presented it was a theater in full action and life mm. a lot of the time he didn't like it to have too many rehearsals because he wanted people a little on edge you know yeah. he would sometimes disrupt a performance even to put people on edge like you know if he, he would tell a dancer you know go out there and do it do do jerry robbins's mistake waltz make some errors in the choreography to get people's attention and, and make the dancers wake up again. Like, don't go to sleep doing this dance. You may be done a hundred times. Creep in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, wake up. Be alive. Yeah. You're on. This yeah. is this is life. This is not a, a preservation right. exercise. Even if you've done Sarah not a hundred times. Yeah. It's got to be fresh every time. 
And then that dynamism, like it is and isn't hierarchical because his whole journey was like, I'll put a corps de ballet dancer as a principal role or all this and yeah. I'll try people here and there and I'll... Yeah, the dancers what can are they listed do? alphabetically. They're right? listed alphabetically. Um, now, they weren't always treated alphabetically. <laughs> right, but, <laughs> but listed alphabetically. You know, and there were hierarchies at Balanchine's New York City Ballet, yeah, as there are today. But he was interested in great dancing. That's what he wanted to put on the stage, I think. So whatever it took to do that, that's where he was. And he wasn't interested in, I mean, you know, this is the thing about Balanchine. It was about service. He didn't care about money. He was here all day, and <laughs> he was doing the work. He, he, he was, was here studio. all day. They were here all day. Exactly. I mean, think about it. You know, you walk in the doors, and you're basically in the shell of this building. You said to me as you walked in that you felt like your body was somehow connected to the walls of this theater. Yeah, totally. totally. And it's, it's I think that, that also probably describes what many dancers feel, because the number of hours that you yeah. spend in this building... No windows. <laughs> no windows. It's, it's, an, it's its own real, uh, realer, realer than, than real, real world. world. The temple of dance. Yeah. you've got your son, but it's a spotlight. And, and it's, it's a whole... You know, you eat here, you you don't sleep here, but you might. You take naps here, for sure. <laughs> um, so, and he did it through his devotion to the people who were devoted to him. Mm. And I, you know, I'm not suggesting that everybody was happy at George Balanchine's New York City Ballet. No, they I weren't. Mean, and there were tons of pettiness of and arguments and fights and unhappiness. Undoubtedly. You know, lots of that as well. But there was also the feeling that he, number one, he is everywhere. Because he's here all the time, he was everywhere. He was always passing by, passing through. Um, you know, people would say to me, and you know, even musicians would say, you know, he would pass through and stick his head in, and then you would up your game. Hmm. Because you knew that George Balanchine was there. And hmm. so he used his own presence. his own presence to help the whole enterprise stay, to help everybody stay alive and awake. When he did Don Quixote in 1965, I'm just comes to my mind right now is one story of one of the stagehands who was had the role of having the the great large mannequin of the windmill attack Quixote, and Balanchine himself was playing the role of Quixote, and he wanted uh, to be knocked down. And the guy was probably like. And the guy was like, this is Balanchine. He's, he's, you know, we're 1965. Balanchine is 60. So, you know, 61. He, he knocking, knocking him down was not something you would want to be charged with, right? Yeah, yeah. But he really wanted it. And, and he, so the guy did knock him down and or made sure that the windmill knocked him down. Yeah. And he bought him a bottle of his favorite <laughs> I don't know what it was. Some whiskey. Great, yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh-huh. I mean, and he knew what his favorite whiskey was. Or he, so he, he knew the stage. Yeah. I may not be getting the details knew. exactly right there but in the that, book. But, but, that, but that, that care about the But that the, care the about the people. The and he knew them all. And he talked to them. And he wanted to know, you know, where are you from? And what do you like to eat? And what are your favorite TV shows? And mm. what are you reading? He loved to know what was going on. In his house. Because <laughs> That's yeah. what, that was his material. Everything in this house was his material. Mm. It's what he was working with. Mm. So he wanted to know who are these people, what are they like, how do they run, what drives them. Yeah. 
and if they wanted to dance, that that was the main thing. <laughs> it's like, and, and casting and getting people on stage and being in that front wing. I mean, you had an amazing insight about him standing in that front wing. Yeah, the front wing is such a is right. such a thing. I mean, that is where um, where we think that Patipa also stood. So there's a way in which he it's a continuity. To me, it's also just very poetic sort of reduction of everything how the theater worked because he he was notoriously always present i mean not every night but most, most nights yeah. he was there and it was very important to the dancers that he was there and i think it affected their performance so if you think again of the the ways in which that might feel if you had him in the first wing mm. you're coming on stage and you know that this person is there mm. And you're dancing for an audience, for yourself, for the music, for whatever you're dancing for, but also for this person who's standing there. Mm -hmm. And there's a way in which the performance is being made by the orchestra and the conductor, who's also in sight. Yeah. They're all in sight. Yeah. So everybody's in view and the backstage and the other dancers. We're all right there. They're all there together. They're all there. Everybody, this whole community is there. The stagehands, the the lighting people, everybody's there and everybody has their little part. Don't forget dancers don't always know the parts of other people. Right? They know their part. Right. Everybody knows their part. Right. And Balanchine's the one who knows all the parts. How they all fit together. He, he may not be able to, he doesn't know all the parts. Right, exactly. He had Rosemary. He, had, he had people to help him with all the details. He depends on the, the people who know all the parts. Yeah. He, he depends on the people who know the parts. Right. And then it's this idea of the, of the, of the watcher and the watched. Mm. And what happens to you when you're being watched. Mm. Which is partly what it means to be a performer. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And then his, and then the primacy of teaching for him, like our teachers would always like, and then, you know, you'd come into class the next morning and he would be giving a combination based on some step that needed to be better in the show the night before. So it's like that through line the whole day mm-hmm. of working towards those goals yeah, as a yeah, community. Yeah. yeah, the idea that the class was also a time when he was understanding who his dancers were and watching them push themselves and pushing them into new ways of, of moving and then using that movement in, in choreography. You know, and he was very proud of himself as a craftsman mm. and his ability to be able to, you know, he didn't have a vision of the romantic artists being inspired and having moments when they couldn't choreograph or something. You know, he could really produce on ballet is about time. And and he could produce on time. I love that quote. The my muse comes to me on union time. Yeah, my muse. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> the last couple of questions I had, are like, what were some of the biggest surprises you found in your research? I knew that Balanchine was one of our great twentieth century artists, but I was not prepared for the range of his intellect and of his emotion and of his. Um, spirituality, that I was taken down paths, just that it was a big, big challenge. There were times when I thought, I'm just not going to be able to do this because it's mm. it's so big. Mm. I mean, from the politics to, um, you know, reading all of Russian, <laughs> all of Russian literature I could get my hands on because he knew it. Um, certainly the great Russian literature, you know, studying music, g- going to see art, 
from sort of Russian icons to the Renaissance to the Surrealists, trying to understand the, the sheer range of his imagination was such a privilege and such a fascinating way for me to live mm-hmm. for those 10 years. And mm-hmm. I mean, writing a biography is a really strange pursuit in a way because you're basically living with somebody who's, you know, you're living with somebody who's dead and who can't answer your questions and can't mm. be interviewed. And you're working from the remnants of a life and you're kind of alone with it, even though you're also helped by, I mean, mm-hmm. the dozens and hundreds of people who influenced and helped my work in this. You close your book with uh, what can be read as like Balanchine's Last Dance, the Adagio Lamentoso from the Pathetic Symphony of Tchaikovsky, the final night of the 81 Tchaikovsky Festival. And I thought if you could share that with us, that might be a fitting way to draw our reflections on Balanchine's long and magisterial life to a close. Yeah, I mean, like any life, it's a, it's long and magisterial and also full of pain and difficulty. And, and I did feel that this Adagio Lamentoso, which was from 1981 and came at a moment when he was ill, I thought this was his own comment on his own death. Mm. So maybe I'll just read to you from the very beginning of that chapter and the very end. And the chapter is only three pages long. Mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. it's really just a description of this dance, which mm-hmm. we do have a tape of, but it is um, sketchy tape, a very scratchy tape. And, um, and the ballet has otherwise not been performed again uh, and is lost. So the, the chapter begins this way. It ended with a question. A little boy dressed in white appears holding a candle. A man asks him, tell me where this light comes from. The boy blows out the candle and replies, if you tell me where this light went, I will tell you where it comes from. This was a Sufi parable, perhaps of Turkish origin, Balanchine said, implying not far from his Georgian roots. When the candle went out at the end of the ballet, Balanchine wanted the theater to go entirely black, like the black light of bewilderment, the only true knowledge described by some Sufi masters, when the visible world disappears and the absolute or divine, hidden in the darkness, comes into the light. Before the performance, Ronnie Bates and the crew rushed around covering every last source of light, from the illuminated exit signs to the 30-watt bulb no one had noticed in the second wing projection booth. The backstage work lights were similarly extinguished, and the stage crews even called for the orchestra lights to go black at the end. It was important. No light anywhere, please. Nothing. Nothing. So Adagio Lamentoso was the last symphony that Tchaikovsky ever composed, mm. and it was conduct- he conducted its premiere nine days before his own death from cholera in in 1893. He was 53. Um, When Balanchine made the ballet, it didn't actually get much rehearsal. And here I'm reading from my text again. There were no steps, just gestures and bodies slumped and emptied in grief. There were no roles, no names, no curtain calls. Unusually, the dancers were not even listed in the program. It was performed only once, 
at the closing mo movement of the closing ballet on the closing night of the Tchaikovsky Festival in 1981, just as Balanchine's illness was overtaking him. Later, no one could quite remember these dances or what they had all done that night. Even the lighting cues were not written out but hastily scribbled mm. since they knew that the ballet would not be repeated. It was as if the tissue of the ballet dissolved in their bodies as they performed it, leaving no trace, nothing, nothing. It was made from wisps of movement and memory. There were shadows of the monks from his uncle's investiture at the great Kazan Cathedral and of Golizowski's breathing cross in war-stricken revolutionary Petrograd. There were the seraphim of the Orthodox Church, which he had woven through the Nutcracker and into Noah and the Flood and Don Quixote. There was the innocent child, the mystical themes and parables, and Karin von Ardlington, running like the wind and mourning like the fates. And of course, there was Tchaikovsky, who seemed to span all time and all Russia's, and had accompanied Balanchine from his youth to his first American dance and through to this, his final sojourn. Tchaikovsky's tremendous score brought them all together, the old dancers and the new, the ones who were there and the ones who were not, the women he had loved and the people who had come, and the stagehands responsible for putting out the lights. They were all his people, his animals, his spirit world, his life. The end of the ballet is quite striking, and it occurred like this. Finally, with the faint sound of the bassoon, a single bright light shone on a small boy in a white gown standing at the back corner of the darkened stage. Carrying a lit candle in both hands, the boy walked slowly across the back of the stage and turned to stand with his light at the head of the breathing cross. The music thinned and sank into a series of barely perceptible drum strokes, the beat of time, of a clock, of a heart. The cross stilled and the earth closed. The lights went dark except for the single flame of the candle. And in a last breath, as the music ended, the boy in white blew out the candle. The theater plunged to black. And Jennifer, it, it seems fitting. I mean, after w with Mr. Balanchine's passing, and but and here we are, forty years later. Why are his ballets still important? Why are his ideas still so important for us to continue to invest in and explore? Yeah, I mean that's such a question, and that's a question for the present moment. A life is like a memory, isn't it? I mean, and the memory is in the dances. There are whole worlds in these dances, and. Are they the same as when Balanchine was alive? Of course not, and nor should they be. That would be um, a crazy expectation, and one that would be against the whole nature of his enterprise, which was these dancers, this music, here and now. And Jennifer Holmans, we thank you for illuminating so much about the maker of these dances and for giving us such extraordinary insight into his life. And just thank you for your research and for sharing so generously with us. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Silas, <laughs> for having me and for talking with me. Thank you. A I pleasure. loved being here. A pleasure. To learn more about George Balanchine and his extraordinary artistic collaborators, please consult the reading list that can be found in the notes for this podcast episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you'll join me again to hear the dance.